If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation 17 tonight, we'll be looking at the first six verses of the 17th chapter, and here's what they say. You'll notice it begins with then, which is now in the chronology, the sequence. So these are sequential events that are being laid out in the book of Revelation. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality." And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word and your people who've come out to partake of this text tonight. We would pray that you would allow your spirit to minister to each and every one of us in light of this passage. We'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the year 2003, we went to war with Iraq. And when that happened, I contacted a major news network in New York. I, uh, because of my background, knew how to contact that news network, ABC. And I asked them if they had considered the theological ramifications of this war. And they said, no. I said, well, there really could be some serious biblical matters at stake here in this war with Iraq. And they asked me, what? I said, well, there are four major chapters in the Bible that prophetically deal with that very part of the world. And I said, what I would recommend that you do is get a hold of Dr. John Wolvard in Dallas, who probably is the foremost prophetic expert on the subject. I gave them his phone number. And two days later, they brought him to New York, and he was on national television discussing the ramifications of Iraq and Baghdad, which was known in biblical times by a city that was about 50, 60 miles south of Baghdad. It goes by the name of Babylon. Now, next to the city of Jerusalem, there's no one city in the Bible that commands as much attention as Babylon. In fact, the Bible mentions Babylon over 280 times. And there are four major chapters of the Bible devoted to this one city. There's four major chapters of Scripture that are devoted in great detail to describing what will happen to Babylon just before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in all of his glory. Two of those chapters are found in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 50 and 51. And two of the chapters are found in the New Testament right here in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Now, when you think of the proper noun Babylon, I want you to think in terms of viewing it five different ways. First of all, it does refer to a literal city. That literal city sits on the Euphrates River. At one time was the capital of the Babylonian Empire. As I mentioned, it's about 60 miles south of Baghdad. There is a literal city. Secondly, it refers to an apostate religion. All of the idolatrous religions of the world, all of the man-made religions of the world started right here. They started in this part of the world. Thirdly, it refers to a political power. 
Now, the political power to which it refers is a power that is against God. It refers to those politicians who speak as demonic frogs. These are people who are in power. They are politically controlling the world, and yet they are not interested in being right with the Lord. Fourthly, it refers to a geographical location, and the specific geographical location to which it refers is Iraq. And fifthly, it refers to a godlessness source. This is a harlot. This is a harlot that's known for idolatry. It's known for immorality. Now, Babylon has its historical roots clear back in the book of Genesis. It began shortly after the flood. The city was originally named Babel. It was originally built by Nimrod, false religion. Man-made religion was beginning in this city. It was a work-centered false religious system that presented the idea that man could work his way to heaven. You remember, if you go back to that Genesis 11 text, I don't have time to take you there tonight, but you can read that on your own. In that Genesis 11 text, there were people there building a tower. They weren't building a tower because they thought, you know, if we get another flood, we can climb up high in this tower and escape the flood. The text says in Genesis 11:4 they were building a tower to heaven. This was proud arrogant man saying, we figured out a way to build a tower to heaven. Think of the arrogance of that. The arrogance of thinking that you could build a tower that would take you to heaven and you could live with God. In the 6th century BC, the king of the Bible that really brought Babylon to the forefront of history was Nebuchadnezzar. It became the largest city in the world at the time, with well over 200,000 people living in it. He led the first of four great kingdoms to dominate Israel in what was called the Times of the Gentiles. And you recall when that city of Babel was finally built, God came down and he confused the people, confounded the people, he gave them different languages, but just because they had different languages, it didn't stop man-made religion. What they did is they took their different languages and went to various parts of the world and practiced their idolatry. But it was Nebuchadnezzar who led a major campaign against Jerusalem. He leveled the city. He took captives to Babylon. It was Babylon where Daniel was taken captive to. And it was Babylon where Daniel prophesied he becomes so critical to this book of Revelation. It was this city of Babylon where King Nebuchadnezzar demanded that he be worshipped. And you'll recall he set up a golden image. He demanded that people fall down and worship him. And Daniel predicted that a major series of political powers would successively follow Babylon. He predicted that Babylon would be removed and then it would be replaced by Medo-Persia, then there would come Greece, and then there would come Rome that would follow the Babylonian kingdom, and they would dominate Israel until finally you'd reach a time, this is what Daniel predicted, when God would wipe them all out. And when these powers replaced Babylon... Babylon was damaged, but the city wasn't destroyed. So when you come to Jeremiah 50 and 51, and then when you come to Revelation 17 and 18, God says, I have Babylon in the back of my mind. And just before my son returns in all of his glory, I'm going to destroy her. I'm going to pour out a judgment on Babylon. It will occur late in the tribulation in the last three and a half years, it will occur just before Jesus Christ returns to put an end to the times of the Gentiles. Now what we see as this opens up tonight in these first six verses is that there's this angel that shows John that God has kept the record of the idolatry and immorality that has come from Babylon and he's going to completely destroy her. 
See, this is what a lot of people don't understand. People worship something. Everybody worships something. Most people don't worship the God of the Bible. But they worship something. Some people worship themselves. Some people are after power. They worship that. Some people worship money. Some people worship pleasure. All of this stuff where people worship something other than God started in Babylon. Now, after the war with Iraq, Iraq took a hit, and you look at that and you say, well, boy, that just doesn't look like a flourishing area. I mean, the things that we're going to see described here in these next couple of chapters don't look like it could be really referring to Babylon, but that all started changing even at the beginning of this year, 2022. There was an article written by Theophile Simon, who wrote an article called The New Iraq, Signs of Hope Amid the Rubble and Reconstruction. And in that article, he said, Iraq is coming back strong. Iraq is being rebuilt. Why? Because of oil. The oil production that is there is critical to the whole world. And oil, they claim, is going to be the key to reviving this part of the world and bringing this creature back to life. So we are literally living in a time when the stage is being set for what's described here in Revelation. And what John does here is he gives us a very graphic, detailed account of what he sees going to take place in regard to that part of the world. We could say what he's going to see take place in regard to Iraq. And there are five specific details we want to show you tonight from the text. First of all, one of the seven bowl angels came to John. Notice verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Now I want you to remember that these seven bowls, look at chapter 16 verse 1, these seven bowls that these angels had are in fact the wrath of God. So keep that in your mind. These are the angels who actually have the final bold judgments that fulfill the finale of the wrath of God. These angels are involved in the responsibility of pouring out the seven last plagues that are going to finish the wrath of God. They began their wrath judgment in chapter 16, verse 1. These are obviously seven very holy angels. They have a specific responsibility and assignment. Their specific assignment is to pour out the wrath of God prior to Jesus Christ coming back and returning to this earth. Now, it's one of those angels. Now, keep this in your mind when you read verse 1 of chapter 17. It's one of those seven wrath angels that actually comes to John. John saw this wrath angel personally come to him one-on-one. -on -one. This is a wrath angel. A wrath angel who's talking with John is about to show him some stuff. Now, what that shows us is these wrath angels that are pouring out wrath on the rest of the universe, are no threat to the people of God. They're dangerous to those that aren't in a right relationship with God. But God's judgment angels of wrath, they don't hurt God's family. Here's John talking or listening to one of these angels that are communicating to him truth, and he is talking to an angel who's responsible for pouring out wrath. There's detail number one. Detail number two, one of the seven bowl angels spoke to John. You'll notice in verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and he spoke with me. We're not told which one of the seven final angels this is who was given the responsibility to speak to John, but John does say, and he uses language here, he literally talked to me. And again, I think that's a significant point. There's a chronology to these events. John is seeing these events. He's speaking with angels that are involved in this happening. So these are not details that are coming from some mystical visionary. 
I mean, John did not imagine this in his own mind. These are literal things that John literally saw and heard. And since this is a part of the finale of the wrath of God and the program of God, it stands to reason that one of the angels would have to show it to John and explain what it was. And by virtue of the fact that one of these angels actually speaks to John does suggest this is a key point of the Great Tribulation. Because prior to this, the angels are just carrying out their assignments. John's watching it. But now the angel actually talks to John. See, the Great Tribulation is entering a new phase here in the prophetic plan of God. This is a key prophetic moment of which two chapters in Jeremiah and two in Revelation are devoted to. And when it finally gets here, this angel is pointing out to John things that he needs to record for us because this is a serious moment in the prophetic plan of God. Now, the third detail is one of the seven bowl angels commanded John to come to where he was. I want you to notice verse 1. Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. The Greek adverb come is one that gives John an invitation. The angel is saying, I want you to come to where I'm at, where I'm going. You need to come with me. You need to come see this. So this angel literally is telling John, you need to go with me because I need to show you something and it's an invitation to go to some place that you aren't presently at. That's the word that's used here. We assume that John has been watching things unfold in Jerusalem. We know that to be true because he recorded that just in the previous verses, what he saw take place in Jerusalem. And now he's going to be transported and taken to a new location, which is Babylon. Now, if you do a distance study of geography and topography, the distance from Jerusalem to Babylon is about 1,700 miles. So if you're going to actually go to Babylon and you're watching what's going on in Jerusalem, you're going to have to go with this angel to where he wants you to go to see this. And obviously, John cannot see what this angel wants him to see from where he's at because John's not omnipresent and neither is the angel. So they actually have to go to the place where this is going to happen in order for him to see it. And that's exactly what John does. John has no idea where he's going. He just knows the angel says, come on, let's go. You go with me. Now, the fourth detail is one of the seven angels, bowl angels, said he would show him the judgment of the great harlot. Verse 1 says, come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot. What this angel is specifically going to show John and he wants John to see this, he wants God's people to see this, is the judgment and condemnation and annihilation of the great harlot. And what you'll see in just a second is, no matter how nice this one looks, she is a harlot. And the known harlot shows up multiple times in chapter 17. It's a word that refers to a prostitute. It's a word that literally refers to one who makes money by seducing or soliciting people into immoral things. It's translated by the noun whore in the King James Version and the New Revised Standard. It's translated by the noun harlot, the New American Standard and the Revised Standard, and prostitute in the ESV, NIT, and NIV. This is a great harlot, which means this is the harlot of all harlots, the harlot of the mega level. This is the source of the harlotry. This harlot is a harlot above all others in immorality and influence. And from a superlative level, there's no greater harlot that God has holding accountable than this one. And there are three facts that are brought out about the harlot. Number one, she sits on many waters. That's what he says in verse one, sits on many waters. That means at least two things. She literally 
geographically sits on many waters and tributaries of the Euphrates River, and she's also not far from the Tigris River. So literally, there is a literal physical application, geographical application, but secondly, she has seductively infiltrated Gentile nations to turn them all away from God. When he says she sits on many waters, he wants people to understand this philosophy of idolatry and immorality has had an international impact. This harlot that I'm holding accountable at this particular location is the harlot that has dominated and influenced the Gentile powers all over the world. The second fact is the harlot committed acts of immorality with political leaders of the world. Notice verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Now, the day and age in which you and I live, I would say in the course of our lifetime, and you know, I've been thinking about these things since the 60s. I guess that's when I could go back to the 60s and think I really started looking at political things, although I've never been caught up in it much. But the fact of the matter is very few political leaders are God-honoring when they get that power. There are some, but they're very few. They're far and few between. In fact, when you go through the Bible, very few were God-honoring when they got that power. Now, Joseph was, when he got power, Mordecai was, certainly Daniel was, David certainly was God-honoring when he had power. But the fact of the matter is, for the most part, those that are in political positions of power, they're not really interested in what are the scriptures say and what would God want me to actually do. But after the rapture of the church, the only kind of politicians left are those that are connected to the evil one. The only kind of politicians left on earth are politicians who are greedy, they're after power, they're after money, and they are after sex. And the word immorality says just that. When you use that particular word that John is using here, these political leaders of the world are involved by getting involved in this kind of activity. They're involved in wanting power. They're involved in money. They're involved in immorality. I mean, the vast majority of political leaders are not driven by a desire, let's honor God. I mean, even in today's world, the vast majority of political leaders are not driven by, you know, we need to glorify God in our decisions. We need to do what's right in the decisions that we make for the people so God will bless the nation. They don't think like that. The vast majority of people are driven by power and money and immorality. And after the rapture, that's only going to escalate. So what is brought out here is this is the harlot that has seduced the political leaders of the earth. That's the second fact. The third fact is this harlot has intoxicated the world with immorality. Verse 2 says, And the earth was made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now there's an important principle to learn. Intoxication and immorality go hand in hand pretty obvious from that statement. There's a connection between getting drunk and being immoral. And by the way, don't kid yourself, immorality is intoxicating. Intoxicating immorality that's dominated the world, it starts here, see? This is why God is holding this part of the world accountable and responsible. He has not forgotten about this place because it began right here. The word drunk is literally a word that means they've been overflowing in a level of immorality. They're literally out of their minds. They're literally out of control in immorality. And our world's heading toward that. Our world's heading to being out of their minds. They don't even think logically or rationally when it comes to moral issues. And what's obvious is that God says, you know what? I'm keeping records here. And at this point, 
just before my son returns, I'm coming back and I'm going to pour out my wrath on all nations of the world, including Babylon. Now, the fifth detail is one of the seven bowl angels carried John away. Verse 3 says, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There are two specific facts that are brought out in this text. First of all, he was carried away into the wilderness. Now, that to me, I think, is indicative of the fact that you are referring to a legitimate geographical location, Because when he says he was carried away to the wilderness, you're not talking about a metro area. And it would lend itself, in my opinion, to the fact that it would be literally referring to that Iraq and Baghdad and Babylon area. Because if you analyze the type of topography that exists in that part of the world, it is a wilderness. I mean, it's like a high plains wilderness that surrounds that part of the world and all the hundreds of thousands of square miles that make up Iraq. And it butts up against the mountains of Turkey, eventually. That's where it goes. And so I would suspect that he's carried away into the wilderness that lends itself to the fact he's heading to literally Iraq. And the second fact that's brought out is he saw a woman. And I want you to notice this. And I saw a woman. And it's interesting, the word that's used for woman, gunaika. I saw a female. He stresses that here. This is not a girly man or a transgender. He's basically saying here, I saw a woman, a gunaika. We actually get our English word gynecologist from this particular word. Now, this is the woman that is the great harlot who is responsible, as you'll see in just a second, for all the immorality and idolatry of the world. And I don't want to overlook the fact that John says, I saw this, I saw this, and this is sequential, and I saw this. I was carried away to the wilderness And the next thing that I see in the sequence is I see this woman. I see this female woman. And there are 12 observations that John makes about her. Number one, she's sitting on a scarlet beast. That's what verse 3 says. I saw this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now what we know by just that imagery, by sitting on a scarlet beast, is she has the full support of the beast. Because he's carrying her. She's sitting on him. And we also know who the beast is. The beast is none other than the Antichrist, the one who's in control. The beast's noun is singular, so you're talking here about that beast that we've seen in the previous chapters who is in major political power and controlling the world, and he's responsible for the satanic evil that's propagated in the world. This is the Antichrist. And so what we learn here from this opening statement, I saw this woman sitting on a scarlet beast, is what we learn is she has the full support and the demonic support of the political dictator who's controlling the world. So she's in cahoots with him. Secondly, the woman has the full support of the beast who was full of blasphemous names. That's interesting. And I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. Now the noun names is plural, and the noun blasphemous means these are all names and things that she's saying that is against God. Here's the scary part to this. The scary part to this is the world will not be able to recognize this. I mean, she will be saying things that are blasphemous against the Lord and blasphemous against the Lord Jesus Christ, but she'll have a religious bent to her. And as a result of that, there will be people that will buy into her religious thinking. I mean, she's going to have the support of the whole world, but everything about her is a slander against God. 
The third observation is the woman has the full support of the beast who had seven heads. That's what he describes, having seven heads. Well, we already know what that is because we saw the imagery defined for us in the previous chapters. The seven heads represent seven kings. So as we will see, she has a close connection to the seven specific dictatorial kings that are located in the world. This harlot will be closely connected to the beast as he's running things and he's distributing his power throughout these seven kings that he has dominating the world. She'll have a close connection to them. And also, the woman has the full support of the beast who had ten horns. That's what we read in verse 3. The ten horns we saw earlier represent the ten major political kingdoms. Those are the European kingdoms that have band together who are contemporary kingdoms that exist when the beast exists. And we learn from Daniel's book that the Antichrist is going to parcel out land for a price. So what this means is he's going to restructure the world. And obviously there's going to be these key political positions and appointments that are made. They'll be his puppets. And this woman is going to have a close connection to all the power of the world. Now the fifth observation is the woman was clothed with purple and scarlet. Verse 4 says the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. And you just visualize this woman. She's a gorgeous spectacle. It's been said that purple is the color of royalty, scarlet the color of wealth. These are very expensive dyes, and they were luxuries that most people couldn't afford in the first century. This woman will appear to have royal power and beauty. One commentator said she has splendor and majesty. But the fact that she's clothed with purple and scarlet is no coincidence. Because that is the very color of the robe that was put on Jesus Christ just before he was crucified. You remember they put that kind of robe on him and they mocked him and they mistreated him while he was wearing that robe. And what this says is God says, I haven't forgotten about that. I haven't forgotten about what these false religious people did to my son. I haven't forgotten about that. I've never forgot about the history and the source of man-made religion that is against me. I haven't overlooked that. God says, I'm going to hold this woman accountable for what she did to my son, and she will pay the full brunt of my wrath. The sixth observation is the woman was adorned with rich gold. That's what verse 4 says. And she was adorned with gold. She has what Grant Osborne said in his commentary, opulent dress, wealthy demeanor, and gaudy jewelry. And she's got that by taking it from her lovers. And you know, the fact is, God-mocking people, people that don't care about the Lord, God-mocking immoral people may seem for a while to have all the wealth for a short time, for a short time. But then it comes to an end. Which brings us to the seventh observation. She's adorned with precious stones. That's what verse 4 says, and precious stones. This harlot is rich at the ultimate level. The most expensive jewelry store in the United States is Harry Winston on Fifth Avenue in New York. I know many of you shop there, so that's not a surprise to you. This store is known worldwide for high-end things. You go online, sometimes it's even hard to even get a price for something that they're selling there. This woman will be adorned just wearing that for her daily clothing. The eighth observation is the woman was adorned with exquisite pearls. That's what the text says. She had pearls. This woman has wealth and power and beauty and rings and earrings and necklaces. 
Then the ninth observation, she has a gold cup in her hand. That's what verse 4 says. She has a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. Now, she's got a gold cup in her hand, but here's the way God sees it. It's a gold cup that's filled up with all the abominations she's brought to the people. This gold cup was full of unclean things, full of her immorality. She has tremendous clout with religious people. She has tremendous clout with political people. She has great social influence. But God says that's all filled up with nothing but abominations. It's a cup overflowing with abominations. And all those people that are involved with her, they're abominations. Which brings us to the 10th observation. The woman had a name written on her forehead. Verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now what we learn here is that at this point a mystery is revealed about this woman. A mystery is something that is known by God, but not known to us until God chooses to reveal it. That's what a mystery in the Bible is. It's something known by God, not known by us until God chooses to reveal it. And by virtue of the fact that the names are revealed here, what we learn is that God is now revealing to John and explaining to him what he's about to do and to whom he's about to do it. And he's about to graphically point it out. The name written is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. In other words, this is the one that produced harlotry, the mother of the abominations of the earth. This is the Babylon, the Babel that started it all. This produced all the abominations of the earth, all the immoral things, all of the evil things, all of the false religious things that have ever happened stemmed from her. And God said, I'm going to punish her. That's what he claims. Now, there have been all kinds of views concerning the identity of Babylon, and people take the book of Revelation and make up all kinds of stuff. And all throughout history, there have been many who have read this, the Babylon, the mother of harlots, and they have said, well, it's some secret code for some place other than Babylon. Some have said it refers to Rome. Now, these names that are given to this woman would seem to establish this is not a reference to Rome because Rome did not give birth to idolatry. Rome had idolatry, a lot of it, but it didn't give birth to idolatry. Rome did not give birth to immorality. Rome had a lot of immorality back in the first century, but it wasn't the mother of it. And although Rome certainly was given to both, she's not the one that gave birth to it. So I don't think you could just say, well, let's say this is really Rome. Secondly, some have said it refers to Jerusalem. But that can't be because we've already previously seen what happens to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been split into three parts and the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to set his feet down on the mount when he returns and then it will be split again. So that can't refer to Jerusalem. Some have said it refers to the United States. Some have said it refers to New York. Now, the cities of the nations are down at this point. We saw that in chapter 16 and verse 19. The cities of the nations have come down. So we would suspect New York is down. Rome is down. The main cities of the United States are down. So we are left to say, you know, it probably refers to Babylon that's in Iraq. And that view that says this is the location where this is going to take place 
is basically saying this is the part of the world where all false religion and all idolatry and all immorality started. This is where it started, clear back in the book of Genesis. And right now there are about 250,000 people that are living in that vicinity of Babylon right now, which would allow for a literal interpretation, not a figurative or symbolic interpretation. And I take the position that just as Jerusalem means Jerusalem, Babylon means Babylon. So God says, look, I have kept the records ever since the book of Genesis. I've kept the records of all of the evil, idolatry, and immorality that has come out of that. The man-made religious system that men have devised that have tried to usurp my grace system. I've kept the records of that. And at this point, I'm going to pour out my wrath on that part of the world just before my son returns. The 11th observation is the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. Verse 6 says, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. God said, not only is she responsible for immorality, this is the place that has just been murdering my people, murdering my people. And the 12th observation is the woman was drunk with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And I saw the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. John says, when I saw this woman, I wondered greatly. He said, I was astonished by this. Now, this war with Iraq and this rebuilding of Iraq now with oil establishes part of a plan that could be a prelude to some of these events occurring. And what we need to realize here as we've gone through this passage of Scripture is that, you know, a person may be successful and wealthy and powerful for a moment. But if you leave God out, if you leave Jesus Christ out, God's wrath will track them down. That is what is predicted to happen to Babylon I guarantee you, just as other prophecies have literally been fulfilled in Scripture, so will that one be. Let's pray. You don't have to worry about the wrath of God if you have Jesus Christ in your life. If you've never invited him into your life, do it right now, right where you sit. Just turn your life over to him. Ask him to save you. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you that because of a justification moment where you've declared us righteous. We've been set free from our sin and we're at peace with you. Thank you for everything that you've given to us and done for us. We want to pray for the fellowship time to come and the food. We ask your blessing on both. In Jesus' name, amen.